Um, do you guys remember that uh, owl from the Tootsie Roll commercials? How many licks does it get to take to a Tootsie Pop? Or at least a kid. You know, he's asking about how many, how many licks? And the owl says, one, two, three. Well, today me and Mal learned how many trips to church it takes before it's an actual pleasant, worshipful Sunday drive. Um, uh, usually I'm stressing about my sermon. Um, Willa might be screaming or, or something. And Mal's just kind of in her happy place, singing hymns, trying to get ready for church. Uh, and, and so how many, how many tries does it take to get to Sunday? Um, with a kid and you feel worshipful. Uh, well, right now it's one out of like 146 or something like that. So, uh, par- parents just hang in there. Uh, there will come a morning, uh, where you will worship on the way to church. Uh, I want to invite everybody to open their Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, today we're going to cover the whole chapter. Uh, so verses 1 to 20. Uh, now if you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I, proudly proclaimed that I am an Eagle Scout, but you'll also remember that, uh, actually I'm not really uh, that proud of it, uh, because um, uh, I remember as little as I was taught becoming an Eagle Scout, as much as I remember algebra, algebra. I cannot help you find out what X is. I, you're on your own, <laughs> don't come to me, and that's that's about my knowledge of, of what I learned being an Eagle Scout. Uh, and the stated mission of the Boy Scouts is this. To prepare young people to make ethical and moral choices over their lifetimes by instilling in them the values of the Scout Oath and Law. So the Boy Scouts have what's called the Scout Law. Don't ask me to recite it for you. I, I was supposed to. Uh, my final interview for Eagle Scout, they're supposed to ask you to recite it. Um, <laughs> they didn't ask me that. Uh, I, it's... I. Really slipped through the cracks there. Uh, anyway, uh, my dad always could, um, and Teddy Roosevelt or whoever will be proud. Uh, I don't know who started the Boy Scouts. Anyway, it goes like this. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. All right. But unless you live under a rock, and some of you I'm assuming that might be true, uh, you're familiar with the recent Boy Scouts history. Uh, and, it, and a lot of it's not really recent, but it's really kind of come in the news recently. First, there were accusations of sexual abuse. Uh, in fact, a prominent leader of the Boy Scouts, like a national leader of the Boy Scouts in the 1980s, had this to say. That's been an issue since the Boy Scouts began. It's not... Um, Brave or helpful, is it? Then there were accusations of rampant bullying, uh, and scout leaders would often overlook the bullying that would happen, thinking bullying would just toughen people up. So much for friendly and kind. Fast forward, uh, and now the Boy Scouts of America fully open themselves up to the sexual revolution, ultimately giving way to culture over their stated Biblical um, ideals. Uh, and just as a pastoral note here, I, I do think that homosexuals have been and still are mistreated in many ways. Uh, that's less of a stance uh, on going people with the love, going to people with the love of Jesus than it is giving into a cultural ideology, okay? And in any case, the Boy Scouts of America has pretty much reneged on the entire scout law. They don't really stand for any of that. Uh, anymore. 
It's now simply just an outdoor enthusiast group that is just a shell of its former self. Its prestige is gone, honor is gone, and is now completely ineffective in creating a culture of change. If you thought today I was just going to rail on the Boy Scouts of America and let you off the hook, let me inform you that you are badly mistaken because we can be exactly like this. God has called His people to be a blessing. He has called us to sow the seeds of His kingdom. He has called us to show His glory to people. And we do this through our obedience to Him. Similar to a scout law, right? We obey God's commands and we obey Him. The thing is, this isn't about being a good or a moral person. It's not about going to church. You can be good and upright and still be totally lost. This is about God being the foundation of all of our obedience. And if we get this wrong, we will become ineffective in creating a culture of change. If we get this wrong, we lose our honor and our prestige. If we get this wrong, we become a shell of who we're actually supposed to be as the church of God. If we get this wrong, God being the foundation of our obedience, we miss Christ. But praise God, His mercy is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient to empower a life of obedience for His glory. In other words, what this sermon is about is this. God is our only hope for a life of obedience. And we see this in chapter 12 with the call of Abram, or or Abraham as he'll come to be called in later chapters. So let's read and learn what from what God says in His Word, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. If we're going to break this chapter down into parts, the simple parts go like this. God's call, God's command, God's promise, Abraham's response. Okay, God calls Abraham, God commands Abraham, God promises Abraham, and Abraham responds. All of this shows us what it means for God to be at the bottom and foundation of our obedience. And the first aspect of this is that obedience is an overflow. Obedience is an overflow. Specifically, obedience is an overflow of two things. The first is that obedience is an overflow of grace. In this chapter, we're introduced to this guy named Abram. And and Abram is a surprising character. It's not like he's doing something other people aren't. And it's not like there's something about him to catch our attention. This week, like I mentioned, I I went to this pastor's conference and and I had this I had this really awesome privilege to hear this guy, this pastor in Africa, preach. And he had a really wonderful African accent. It was awesome. One of the first things I noticed about him, though, were his biceps. Like, this guy had rocking arms, okay? I'm not kidding. Bicep envy is real, and I have it. I liked his biceps, okay? That's supposed to be funny, okay? If you're a guy and you don't have bicep envy, I think you're lying. Anyway... There was something about him that made me recognize, like, there's something about this guy that he does. Well, it turns out he played rugby growing up, okay? And rugby, you don't want to mess with a rugby player. So so, so it, it, the point is, there's something about him that made you instantly recognize him as someone who did that. Like, Whoa, this guy's something. He played rugby. And he's a good preacher, okay? More importantly, he has big biceps. N- n- not so with Abram, right? The opposite is true of Abram. He, his dad was dead. Right, we learned that uh, at the end of chapter 11. His dad died. He was old, 75 years old and weak. And his wife had infertility. She was barren. This is the opposite of recognizability. In contrast uh, to chapter 11 with the builders of Babel trying, trying to make a name for themselves, Abraham is officially a no-name. Moreover, not only is Abraham a no-name, he is a bona fide, uncircumcised Gentile who in all likelihood was worshipping idols. There's nothing about Abram that should catch our attention, much less God's. And everything about him to make him overlooked and passed by, and yet God calls him. This right here, just that now the Lord said to Abraham, is an act of divine grace. 
Abram isn't calling on God and isn't doing anything for God, but God, in mercy, initiates His saving grace toward this man. Not only saving Abram from eternity in hell, but ensuring that He will now save others through him. That's grace. Which means that that Abraham's obedience now and ours always starts with grace. We don't take the initiative to obey. God must save us. You can't obey until you've been called. You can't obey until God saves you and changes you. And this, this is where you fall on your knees begging for God for mercy. I can't obey you. I can't change my heart. I can't do any of this. I need you to save me. You plead with God to save you and change you. Then, and only then, when God saves you by His grace, are you free to obey. Even if you've been saved your whole life, your obedience is empowered by grace. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, which is by grace, continue to live in Him, which is by grace. Recall where you were when God called you and saved you. Recall call that to mind. What, what position were you in? Recall how far you've come and how God has sustained your faith through trauma and pain and loss. Recall the countless sins that God has forgiven that He has determined to sanctify you from. Recall what it costs to save you and to do all of this. The Son of not, the blood of not just a man, but the blood of the Son of God. Christian obedience is always an intake and an overflow of grace from beginning to middle to last. We also see that obedience is an overflow of blessing. So not just an overflow of grace, but of blessing. God calls Abram, gives him the command to leave, and promises this. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. For what reason? For what reason? For Abraham's own prosperity? For his own safety? For his own fame? No. So that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Obedience is always an others-directed action. When God is the foundation of our obedience, our obedience becomes a blessing to all others for His glory. Stephen Dempster noted that in contrast to the Babel builders making a name for themselves, Abram's greatness derives from God making a name for him. When this is true of us, if God is the one that is at work in us to, to make us obedient, to help us be obedient, our obedience cannot help but become an overflow of blessing to others. If you go down to Fellows Lake, it's probably too late, but early in the morning it's, it's calm, right? It's really still. There's no ripples, no waves. 
and then you drop a rock in it, what happens? Ripples go out in all directions. Just like that, Christian obedience cannot be self-contained. It cannot help but be others impactful. Jesus said it like this in chapter 6. I tell, Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry. I tell you who hear me, okay? Jesus is saying that to you right now. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, which means not only to those who do good to you, but also to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus always intended for our obedience to bless others for, for their comfort, for their encouragement, for their service. Maybe we're blessing others by trying to correct their sin. Specifically, He intended that our obedience would be a channel for the salvation of others. And through our obedience, more people would come to know Christ and obey God. Obedience is an overflow of grace and of blessing. It's part of what it means to have God as the bottom of our obedience. This is what separates just pure morality, being a good citizen with Christian, Bible, godly obedience. But guess what? This by no means implies that obedience is easy. Missouri is hands down the windiest place I've ever lived. Yesterday, me and Jerry out on the, on the top of the hill for Marie's uh, graveside service, he looks over at me and he says, not a good hair day, is it? Because the wind's just, you know, blowing our hair everywhere. Uh, especially in the fall and spring. And one of the most frustrating things I've ever done in my life is to try to rake or blow leaves out of my lawn because I blow them and the wind blows them right back. Oh, I mean, I'm telling you, it's frustrating. It's a fight. Godly obedience is a bit like trying to get rid of leaves in Missouri. It can be painstaking. It can be difficult. It is a fight and it can absolutely drain you. But a significant aspect of, of obedience is that obedience is a sacrifice. Our second point. God doesn't just call Abram and, and say, alright, you're, you're mine, you're, you're, you're free to do this, I'm just going to bless you. He also commands him. Abram must respond to God's command. Go from your country, verse 1, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then in verse 4, we see that Abram obeys. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So the first part of Abram's sacrifice is this call to leave. He's called to leave. And these days, leaving is common, commonplace. I mean, we send our kids to school for the day if, if they go to private or pu public school. Uh, they may leave to go off to college. And eventually, they may leave and move to an entirely different part of the world. I love my family, but I, there's no way I'm ever going to move back to Mississippi unless God... <laughs> basically calls me like Abraham is like, move back to Mississippi, then I'll do it. But I'm not going back home to Mississippi. What is commonplace today would have been incredibly unacceptable in Abram's day. Even in many cultures today, especially Middle Eastern culture, family is everything. 
you inherit the family's fortune, you inherit the family's honor, you inherit the family's future, and the family's trade, and the family's name. The family falls on you. To leave this would be to leave behind your 401k that you've been building up for 30 years at your job. Or if you've seen that movie, Into the Wild, right? There's this guy that takes his inheritance uh, and just moves into the woods uh, and he, he squanders his uh, wealth to live in the woods. And he dies, by the way, spoiler alert. But this kind of sacrifice is not unique to Abram. This is the call of every Christian. Jesus in Luke chapter 14 said it most emphatically and provocatively. Listen, these are the words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is talking about is the necessity for us to lay everything we hold dear on the altar in sacrificial surrender to his lordship. Mother and father do not get in the way. Wife and children do not get in the way. Friends, brothers, sisters, jobs, lives. Comfort, securities, everything. Leaving those behind. Obedience is a sacrifice. And leaving, and it's also seen in Abram's wandering as well. Everything we're told in this chapter shows us that Abram never gets a home. He's called by God and he never gets a home. So look at verse 5, right? They set out. Uh, Verse 6, go down to verse 6. Abram is just passing through, right? He's not stopping, he's passing through. And oh yeah, at that time the Canaanites were in the land, so... Uh, uh, sorry, this place belongs to somebody else. Um, and then uh, if you look down at uh, verse 8, what verse 8, from there, he, he moves on to the hill country, uh, and then uh, he pitches its tent there in verse 8. In verse 9, Abram journeys on. So not only does Abram leave everything behind, it doesn't get easier. It stays difficult. Godly obedience costs. It's difficult. And it often doesn't get easier for us. Sometimes we lose our lives for Jesus. Sometimes our families and our communities disown us. Sometimes we get slandered. Often it requires this daily discipline of of going to God in prayer and and fighting sin that's ever-present in our hearts, and reading our Bibles. Paul calls it in Philippians chapter 4, straining toward what is ahead. I mean, how often do you feel like your Christian obedience is dragging your feet? It's hard. Other places in the New Testament, godliness is likened to wrestling. So you not only think of the strength and the discipline it takes to wrestle, but you're also this other... Like a 250 pound body is all over you, sweaty and nasty, and you don't want this, but it's there. But God never calls us to do what He also does not empower us to do. In other words, what God commands, He gives the grace to complete. 
verse 7 and 8, Abram builds an altar to worship. And that's just not, that's not just a nice little thing for us to know. It's showing us that Abram's sacrificial obedience is sustained by God's glory. Listen, when the world and the things of the world are glorious to us, we will not live in sacrificial obedience. And pleasure and comforts, securities, those things are glorious. We will not give them up. But when God is glorious above all else, there is nothing we will not withhold from Him. It's His glory that sustains us and it's His grace that empowers us. Because obedience is a sacrifice. Finally, obedience is an expectation. Every week in our house, it's the same. We'll clean the house, mostly Mallory, uh, get it shiny and spotless, only to have it messy again within an hour. Okay, Mal always throws her hands up in exasperation and always, without question, will say, what's the point? The answer is about two feet tall and as destructive as an in-house tornado. We clean our house only to have it revert back to the way it was. Seems like a complete failure. And Abram, Abram is doing a great job of following God up until this point. Verse 10. He takes God at his word, leaves his family and house behind, he worships. He's cleaned the house, so to speak. He's doing great. Until here, verse 10. He falls right back into messy failure. Right back into sin. He takes his wife down to Egypt fears that he's going to die and actually gives her to Pharaoh as Pharaoh's wife. If I tried that with Mal, do you husbands know the death stare? It is my least favorite thing in marriage is the death stare. I, I love marriage. okay, Just not death stares. What's funny is this whole passage, this verse 10 to 20, is actually a foreshadowing of the Exodus, isn't it? Um, uh, they go to Egypt because of famine, which is exactly what Joseph family will do later on. God afflicts the Egyptians with plagues, and Pharaoh sends them away. It's a foreshadowing of the Exodus. And, and, and really, what Moses wants us to see here are the parallels, and specifically, the parallel I want to focus on is this. It's how Israel responds to God after the Exodus. What do they do continually? They don't trust God. They disobey Him. And that's exactly Abram's problem here. It's a, it's a failure of trust on Abram's part. It's, it's actually unbelief on Abram's part. This is what makes obedience an expectation. Obedience to God is based on the belief in God that He does what He promises. That He is who He says He is. Obedience that doesn't trust God isn't obedience at all. Obedience that doesn't trust God is obedience that internally believes I can do all this on my own. I don't need God to accomplish this. I'm good enough on my own. By myself. 
we, look, we've been Christians a long time and we may not think that explicitly, but it's what we say with our obedience that doesn't trust in faith on a day-by-day basis. So what does Abram's life here teach us about expectation? First, it's the expectation of protection. God explicitly promised Abram that he's going to protect him, basically. I will make you into a great nation. But, in verse 13, Abram clearly doesn't believe that. Uh, he doesn't believe that God will protect him because, say it will go well with me, with me, with you, that, or say, you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. God made a promise to Abram to bring him through. And Abram takes matters into his own hands to make sure that happens. You see the problem, right? Trusting God for protection means that when we obey him, we rest knowing our lives are in his sovereign hands. David prayed in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, he says later on, I will fear no evil. This is our our hope as we follow Jesus' radical call to lay down our lives. Because we're not just tossing our lives aside. We're not careless with our lives. We're committing our lives to an awesome and powerful God. Sickness and pain and death will happen if you follow Jesus. Sorry. But our souls and our faith are in His Loving protection. We can expect Him to do that. It's the expectation of protection and it's also the expectation of provision. Since God promised to bless Abraham and make his name great, Abram's trust should have been that God will provide the means to do exactly that. Abram fails to trust that. Abram fails to believe that God will provide the means necessary of blessing. I mean, he this is a pattern in Abram's life. Later we'll read that his wife's like, you should sleep with Hagar, your servant. He's like, okay, I'll take this matter in my own hands trying to make this work. It's, it's a, a falter of trust. He's trying to do it all in his own power. So what does this mean for us? We obey, trusting that God will supply what we need. Specifically, we trust that God will supply the grace to obey. Remember when I said earlier that God, that what He commands us to do, He will empower us to do it? Remember that? When God calls us to a life of hopeful, radical, sin-killing, holy obedience, we can't do it. We can't fight sin. We can't make ourselves holy. We can't obey to the extent He will that He calls us to. Only His grace at work in us can do that. So we trust that when He tells us to do this, He'll provide that. And where God gives the grace, God gets the glory. If it's all on us, hey, guess who's getting the glory? We are. But if it's God giving us the grace to obey, He gets all the glory. Man, Jerry Bridges wrote in the book, The Discipline of Grace, 
He wrote it. He expressed this beautifully. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Obedience is an expectation that God will provide for our needs and for His great name. Another way of saying all of this is that our obedience is from Him, through Him, and to Him. It's from Him by His grace, through Him by His power, and to Him by His provision. God is our only hope for a life of obedience. Otherwise, if God is not our hope for obedience, not the foundation of our obedience, we go the way of Boy Scouts. This week, our, our, our sister in Christ, Marie, went to be with him. But uh, some of you know this because it was a tough few weeks, but I failed Marie as her pastor. I didn't visit her as I ought. I didn't see her as I ought. God, in His mercy, allowed me to repent for that in the last few weeks. I mean, what a mercy that was for me. But when I got the news that Marie had passed, I, I was at this pastor's conference, and, and at that moment that I got that text, my heart sank, but the worship leader was, was instructing us to stand for the next song, and the next song was this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days in His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. I have failed Marie, I failed Marie as her pastor and I failed you. I fail as a husband. I fail many times as a dad. But Christ is the pastor who never fails. Marie's got a pastor for eternity now who will never fail. He's always obedient. And Christ is a faithful husband. Abram puts his wife in harm's way for his own safety. Christ didn't give his wife away but died in her place. He put Himself in harm's way for His bride. His church. He didn't sell her to Egypt. He gave Himself to Egypt. On your own, Christian, you would fail. You will fail. You do fail. He, God, is our only hope for a life of obedience. So let us cling to Him and cry to Him every day trusting in His grace. Because it is His grace that covers and forgives and it is His grace that empowers and sustains. Let us cling and depend every day. But if you are not a Christian, no amount of obedience will ever save you. You have no hope. You are lost. Tomorrow might be too late. But Christ will be your hope if only you will repent and trust in Him. Let's respond to God and His Word 
into Christ the Lord. This morning. Lord Jesus. You are our only hope for a life of obedience. We're beset by pride. Riddled with sin. We stray. We fail to trust you. Our obedience slips into simple duty and moralism. How desperately we need you for a life of obedience. But you are a God of abundant mercy. A God of overflowing grace. And you beckon us to return to you at the foot of the cross. To drink deeply each and every day. Every minute, every hour of every day. To drink deeply of your grace. To forgive us and to sustain us and to empower us. Lord Jesus, I pray that that through your spirit, through your word, you would give life where there is death in this room. It's not possible that everybody in this room is saved. I pray that you would call those who are lost just as you called Abraham. Pluck them from their sin and from the path to an eternity in hell apart from you. May they call upon you for mercy and grace to change their hearts. In all these things, you are Lord, you are Savior. And we cry to you. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.